All right, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11? And if you don't have a Bible or are using the red pew Bibles and the chairs in front of you, Isaiah 11 is on page 332. Um, we're continuing this series in Isaiah, and I don't think I took the time when we started to explain why we're in Isaiah. So Isaiah is this book in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic book written by Isaiah, who was commissioned uh, in his book by God himself to speak a word of comfort and encouragement and conviction to the people of God. It's recorded speeches and writings from this prophet as he calls the people of God uh, to repent of their sins. He warns them of coming judgment, and he invites them lovingly to embrace the covenant love of God towards them again. One of the themes throughout his book is that God has promised that one day he will send a new king who will rule with righteousness and justice. And he will bring about this season and time of flourishing and great glory once again to God's people. And that this new kingdom would be multinational. It would be supernatural. It would be characterized by the forgiveness of sin. This is the kingdom of God that he has promised to establish. And Christians believe that the coming Messiah that Isaiah tells us about is Jesus. And so every Christmas season, Christians around the world open up the book of Isaiah and they look at these passages and they say, look, Jesus is the one that Isaiah was talking about. He is the one that Isaiah has been pointing to again and again. And so that's why during Advent, uh, we are looking at the book of Isaiah because we want to hear from him about Jesus. And so that's what we were doing this morning, looking at Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, 
who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that through your spirit we would um, see your son in it. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Yesterday, Sarah and I and the kids went out to uh, Rocky River Reservation. I don't know, have you guys all been out there? It's a great place to hike. We went on a hike before the winds and the rain came in, and and it was a great time. And as we were on our hike, um, off to the side, I noticed that there was this plaque sticking up off the ground, a, a little sign on a post. And the sign said, do not step off the trail this is a restoration zone or something like that. Um, and maybe you've seen something like that before. Most, most larger like metro parks have areas of the forest in which they're protecting and trying to bring restoration back. And I don't, I don't know much about forestry. I assume that something had damaged the area and so they are trying to keep people off of it so that the trees can grow back and vegetation can thrive once again. And uh, this restoration zone, it just, it was fascinating. Isaiah 11 begins with this image of a forest with the trees having been cut down. That's what chapter 10 is about. And in chapter 10, there was an axe that chopped down the trees, and the axe was the nation of Assyria. And so in the midst of this forest that has been devastated, God's people, there comes this promise of restoration, that God is going to protect this forest of God's people and bring from it new life. And that's the context of what we're looking at. We're looking at God's promise of restoration. And we're going to see in this passage, uh, who is this branch? You know, what is his identity? What does he do? We're going to look at what the restoration will actually look like And then we'll ask, who can be part of it? So who is this branch that brings restoration? What does that restoration look like? And who can participate? Who can be part of that? First, who is this branch? Who is the one through whom this restoration will come? Well, verse 1 tells us that out of the stump of Jesse and from his roots, there will come a shoot, a branch, And that branch is going to bear fruit. And uh, a a branch coming out of a stump is is sort of a reference to this idea of offspring. You know, one father or family produces an offspring, a son, a child. And and that's what Isaiah is saying is that there's going to become a a child will come from the stump of Jesse. And Jesse is, uh, if you don't know, King David's father. King David was the son of Jesse. So Isaiah is saying that this this stump, uh, Jesse, is going to produce a new son, a new king, a new David. And it's this branch that will bring about this restoration. He's not talking about just any other king in the line of King David. He's talking about a new King David, a truer King David. He is going to bear fruit. And this king, we read, is going to be the Messiah, which means the anointed one. Verse 2 says the Spirit of God will be poured out on him. He will be anointed with the Spirit of God. 
So this King David Messiah figure, who is this? Well, I said before, Isaiah is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is this long-awaited King David. He is the Messiah. And we see this description of what this king will look like, what he'll do. He says that he has this spirit of the Lord upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? Let's look at each of these set of attributes. First, Jesus possesses this spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's a comment about his leadership, his his divine leadership of God's people. And it's described in verse 3. He's he's not going to judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. His wisdom is not the way that the world views wisdom. It's this supernatural divine wisdom. It's the wisdom of the Lord that he has. He's going to look at things in a different way. And we see this actually taking place at at Christmas, the first Christmas, when Jesus, the king, is born. He doesn't come into the world the way that the world would have decided this is how a king should come. He isn't born into a palace, but into a manger. You know, he doesn't have uh, uh, kings uh, around him, and, and, you know, he... The wise men do come, but the first people that see him are shepherds and farm animals. This is not the way that you would expect a king to arrive. And look at his ministry. If he wanted to set up this worldwide ministry, he chose a pretty poor strategic plan. He, he stayed in the rural villages most of his life in ministry. He, he gathered uneducated tradesmen around him. He didn't go to... Rome and Alexandria and, you know, the epicenters of world thought. He was in Israel. And then look at his death. Like, he was hung up on a cross. Humiliation between two criminals. This is not wisdom of the world. This is, like what Paul says, this is the wisdom of God, which looks like foolishness to the world. But this is the king who's going to come. He's got wisdom from the Lord. Secondly, we see that Jesus is uh, equipped not only with wisdom, but also with power. He has the spirit of counsel and might, or or strategy and strength when it comes to conquering. But for whom is he going to fight? For whom will he defend? Look at verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. He's not talking about passing judgment on the poor or condemning them the way that we might use that word judge. No, to to judge with righteousness is to to execute justice for people in alignment with God's holiness and character for them. This is what Jesus will do for the poor and the meek of the earth, those who are in need, those who don't have a voice for themselves. He is going to come in and, and speak for them, advocate for them. Jesus will utilize his God-given divine power on behalf of the poor and the needy. Again, we know this to be true about Jesus. The story of Christmas reminds us that Jesus is, is intimately acquainted with the poor and the needy. He himself was born into a poor family. Like Mary and Joseph did not have the resources to provide for themselves in Bethlehem. 
And so they had to go to the manger and, and the stable. When the, his parents presented him to the temple, as was the custom, and made an offering, they didn't offer a lamb. They offered two turtle doves. And Luke goes out of his way to say that this was what was prescribed for families who did not have the wealth to offer up a lamb. Jesus was born into a poor family. He knows what it feels like. And we look at his ministry. So much of his ministry was towards the social and cultural outcasts, the ones without a voice, the ones who could not advocate for himself. Those are the ones that he brings healing to. He is acquainted with poverty. At the cross, we see that Paul says he emptied himself of all of his riches so that through him we might become rich. Third, and, and finally, we see this spirit not only of wisdom and, and strength, but finally, he possesses the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, which means that he took delight in his relationship with his Father in heaven. Because God is a, a person and, and not in, in an abstract idea or set of principles, God is a person and can actually be known and relate to. Like, you know, just think of any two people who are romantically involved, going on a date together, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get to know one another. For Jesus to have the spirit of knowledge of the Lord is that he, his deepest desire was to relate to his heavenly father. It was such a part of who he was that Isaiah says it was his clothing. The belt around his waist was of faithfulness and righteousness. It so characterized who he was in relationship with his father. What do we make of this? What are we supposed to make of this description of Jesus? As, as Christians who follow Jesus, what are we supposed to make of this? It means if, if we are going to call ourselves Christians and follow this Jesus, our lives ought to look like and, and embody these characteristics too. Like, it, think about your faith, your, your claim of being a Christian. It, if it is merely religious rituals or a sense of morality or a sense of political or cultural perspective and not at its foundation of relationship with God, well, that's what Jesus shows us is important. Or, or you know, if Jesus is, a, is intimately acquainted with the poor and advocates for them, like, there should be some element of us as a church and as individuals that we Likewise, care for the poor and the needy. That's why we're, we're adopting this family in Mayfield Heights, because we think this is the way that Jesus calls his disciples to live. And then finally, we need to believe in and trust in the wisdom of God, which sometimes looks like the foolishness of the world. Like, we believe as Christians that on Christmas, God himself became a man. We believe that God stepped into our world and lived with us. And we believe that he lived a perfect life, not marred by the sin that so stained our lives. And we believe that this God-man died. We believe that God died for us and that he came back to life. This is utter foolishness to the world. 
And yet this is the wisdom of God because it is through the perfect God-man dying for us that we have eternal life, that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have this new purpose that begins now but goes on for eternity. This is utter foolishness to the world, but this is the wisdom of God following our King Jesus. So we ask, who is the branch that Isaiah speaks of? Is Jesus. He is the branch. He is the one who comes out of the stump of Jesse, the new King David, who will reign with righteousness and justice as he brings about restoration. Restoration of the whole world. Because that's what our second question is. What will this restoration look like? That's what Isaiah is actually going to show us now. In verses 6 through 8, Isaiah shows us that this future restoration, it'll be the fulfillment of the promises of Eden. Remember, Eden, the Garden of Eden, this, this beautiful, glorious creation before sin has entered the world where, where humans and animals experience perfect relationship with God and with one another. That is the promise that Isaiah says is coming with this restoration, a world without sin where there is glory everywhere. And he uses three pictures. He uses three illustrations from the animal kingdom to describe what this transformation will look like. First, we see in verse 6, there's going to be reconciliation between old hostilities, that, that enemies are going to come together. He says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat. In this restored creation, enemies will become friends. Old wounds will get mended and healed. Grudges will be a thing of the past, and our sins will be forgiven. Just this weekend, I saw on the news down in Texas, there was a, um, a, a, a slain police officer. There was a memorial for him, and his daughter got up to speak, and his daughter spoke to, you know, not directly, but spoke to her father's murderer and said that she forgave him, that she wanted to meet him, and she wanted to invite him to consider the grace of Jesus for himself. Enemies becoming part of the family of God. That is the picture of restoration that the king will bring about. But secondly, Isaiah says that we are going to see a whole transformation of the very nature of creation itself. Look at verse 7. The cow and the bear will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. This isn't a comment about animals coming together. This is a comment about animals eating the same thing. The very nature of animals is going to change in such a way that they will eat the same thing. It's this picture of the nature of beings being transformed. That in this restoration, that the transformation seeps down into our very being. Our inclinations, our desires, our habits, our natural way of operating, that is going to change and be restored. And so for, for humans, it means that we're 
we're going to have transformed desires and appetites, not for food, but for the things from which we look for satisfaction and fulfillment. We're no longer going to find the things of this world satisfying because we will have had our deepest desires met in Christ. C.S. Lewis uh, remarks about our misplaced desires and not just um, desiring the wrong things, although that's true, but also uh, desiring lesser things when something so much more fulfilling is offered to us. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isaiah is showing us that we were created to be satisfied with something far greater than anything this world offers us. And when Jesus brings about this restoration to completion, we will find our most joyful satisfaction in him. Third and, and finally, Isaiah uh, shows us this vision of restoration that there will be no more fear. There will be no more anxiety or worry. He says, the nursing child will play by the den of the cobra. I, I mean, that, that just seems ridiculous. A kid playing by the snake hole. But Isaiah says, there will come a time where you will not have to fear that because there's no threat of harm in this restoration. I can't even imagine a life absence of fear. I think fear drives so much of my behavior. I mean, when we were on that hike, we were up on the ledge, and on the right side of the trail, it just drops off. And the whole time, I couldn't even enjoy the hike because I was on the right side, like fearful that my kids were going to misstep and fall. How much of our lives is characterized by making decisions out of fear, whether it's trying to protect us financially or, or relationally? So much of our energy is spent up avoiding this threat of harm. But Isaiah says there's coming a day when there will be no more fear. In these verses, we see God reclaiming creation. He's reclaiming it from the state of brokenness and decay, and, and he's showing us the beauty that could come from it. The beauty of a world without sin and sin's effects in our lives. This is the promise of the Garden of Eden, but magnified throughout the whole world. It's the greatest restoration project ever. We love restoration projects. Like HGTV has built a business on restoration projects. I love it. And this, it's this universal desire to see something broken and forgotten and laid aside, brought back to life, brought back to a new beauty and a new purpose. This is a universal desire to see restoration, wholeness, and healing. I listened to a, a podcast recently, and this is such a universal thing that Sandra Bullock, she was being interviewed. Apparently, she's got this real estate company. Like, she buys up properties and restores them. Uh, and 
she was asked in this interview, um, if she got like kicked out of Hollywood today, what would she fall back on? Like, what would be her dream job if she wasn't already doing the very thing that she loves to do? She said she would love to be a restorer, that's what she said. She wants to spend her life restoring things. She says this, I like finding properties, finding what the story was behind it, getting it back to its vibe that I think it wants to be, and finding its use and purpose and bringing that out. Finding its purpose. That is what God is going to do with this world. He's going to remember what the original purpose was of creation itself. He's going to bring it to a glorious new conclusion. Remember, when God made the world, he set us as his image bearers in the world to do what? To fill the world with the glory of God. We're like mirrors reflecting his image everywhere we go. We were called to spread out and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. This is exactly what Isaiah says is going to happen. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is reclaiming the original purpose of creation. He is restoring us all. Are you disillusioned with your life right now? Are you stuck in a nine-to-five job? Are you in a rut doing the same thing every day? day in, day out, wondering, if, is there anything more to life than this? Do you have this deep desire for being part of something truly life-changing, something that'll actually matter in the world, something that'll bring deep satisfaction? Friends, this plan of restoration, this project of restoration is, is the biggest thing that you can be a part of. It's the deepest purpose that you can be a part of. And, and God says, I want to do that in your life, and I want to call you to be part of that in the lives around you. We are invited into this mission far bigger than anything that we could ever dream of. This is the very purpose for which you were created for, to bring him glory every square inch of the earth. Do you want to be part of that? Does that excite you? Well, that brings me to my third question. Who can be part of it? Like, who can be part of receiving this restoration and then being part of restoring the world with God? Isaiah concludes in verse 10, saying that this Messiah King, this one who was going to bring about restoration, from him, restoration will flow. This branch, this root of Jesse, he will be lifted up he will stand as a banner, a flag, drawing the attention for all the peoples to see. When he is lifted up, the nations will come. They will seek him out. They will inquire about who is this king. Jesus said the same thing about himself. John 12. He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He's speaking about the nature of his death, of course, that he's going to be raised and hung on a cross. But he was saying this about his death, that the proclamation of his death on behalf of broken and hurting sinners in need of restoration, that this message would go forth and be proclaimed to all nations, 
so that we can read that every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will look upon him and the cross, and they will come to him. They will seek him out. What does Isaiah tell us that we will find when we come and look at Jesus? You will find that his resting place is glorious, that his place of rest is glorious. He will be raised up, not like the plaque in the woods that says, do not step over here, do not come further. No, he will be raised up as a banner that says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are hurting and in need of healing, and I will give you restoration. I will give you new life. I will give you new glory. Find in me the satisfaction of your hearts. Do you want to be part of this restoration? Go to Jesus. Look upon Jesus. Seek him out. He is not far from us. Find in him rest for your heart. Find in him restoration. What's broken in your life? What's been neglected? What's decaying in your heart right now? Where do you feel that brokenness, the, the pain, the disease and sickness of sin? Where are you hurting? Now ask yourself, how are you self-medicating? Like, how are you trying to restore yourself, fix yourself up? What are you trying to cover with a Band-Aid when you need a surgeon's help? We all do this. We all self-medicate. We all take on these restoration projects of behavior modification. But it's too much to handle. So we get tired and we're worn out. Have you tried looking to Jesus? Isaiah says, seek him out, inquire of him, search for him. He's not far from us. He has come, and he says, come to me. I will give you rest. He has the power to heal you, to restore you. He cares for the needy and the meek of the earth. He knows your struggle with sin. He knows where you're feeling hurt and pain, and he promises to restore you back to beauty. And that beauty might not look the way of the world. Oftentimes when we come to Jesus, he calls us to go down and, 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 and deeper so that he can raise us up. But he does promise to bring restoration. Isaiah tells us that it is by his wounds that we are healed. That's not the wisdom of the world, but it is the wisdom of God. Do you need healing? Do you need to be restored? See him lifted high on the cross for you. He died so that through faith in him, you might live. 